Well, I'd like you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 1 this morning, beginning in verse 1, as we hear from God. You're finding your way there. I do want to relate a story to you that I heard, uh, actually read in a book um, about a month ago. It was a story of uh, a meeting of uh, pastors in a persecuted country. And uh, they were meeting in secret. There was about a hundred of them or so. And they were meeting there um, to be trained and to be encouraged and to be sent back to their flocks to, to minister in a very hostile area. And there was an American there who was hearing their stories. And what struck him is at the last day of this, this secret conference, these pastors all got together and a man took his Bible and he walked uh, amongst these pastors and he began to rip out pages of his Bible and hand it to them. And the man was astonished, saying, why, why are you ripping this Bible apart? And he found out that these pastors didn't have the Bible. And so they were it was asking him, have you, have you preached John? No, I haven't preached John. So they ripped out John and gave it to that pastor. Have you preached Galatians? No, I haven't. So they ripped out Galatians and gave it to that pastor. I feel sorry for the guy who hasn't preached uh, Judas or Philemon or something, but... This, he's just handing out the Bible to these, these pastors so they could bring the Word of God to their people. And I, I relate that story to you because two weeks ago, this church here in Hamilton, Virginia, gave $12,531.54. That's right. Amen. Listen, I, I am thrilled with that. I want you to understand that because of what you gave, hundreds of people who live in Muslim nations who love Jesus and have never held the Word of God in their hand will have it because of Hamilton Baptist Church. You made a, a direct, real, practical impact in the kingdom of God. People's lives will be changed forever because of this gift. And I am just so encouraged by your sacrifice, and I praise the Lord that He would move us to do so. And so praise Him for what He has done here. Well, um, with that being said, I, I do want to turn your attention now that we can hear from the Word of God itself. Since we have it and we are um, very privileged to have it here this morning as we begin in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Father, we come now to hear from You, and we thank You for this great privilege and honor. It's been a privilege already today that we can just gather here together, that there are brothers and sisters here, there are, there are neighbors here who love You, and, and I love You, and we all join together in our love for You, and it's what draws us here because of what you've done in our lives and what you continue to do because of who you are. And we want to know you better. And so we come now to study your word and to hear from you, which you have given to us so that we may know you and worship you and follow you and, and obey you and find our great delight and joy in you. And so I ask that you will come and help us because this will just be a total waste of time if all I do is stand up and teach for 45 minutes and you do not come and speak through these words and speak into our hearts. So I ask that you would open us up to what you have to teach us today, that we may know you and that we may grow more in love with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, it's been for thousands of years that people have been debating, if you will, who is this fellow Jesus? Many have, have questioned, many have made careers of discussing and kind of consider who Jesus is. This is a, a very uh, contemporary issue. Of course, it's been going on for thousands of years, but uh, even more so in our day. I present maybe a survey of the opinions of Jesus to you, one by A. Wilson, a best-selling novelist, who says that Jesus was a good Jewish lad with a brilliant flair for shrewd moral teaching, but he would have been horrified to think of a church, let alone people worshiping him as if he were divine. Morton Smith, the professor of ancient history at Columbia University, has a different take. He says that Jesus was a magician who used his influence, uh, who influenced his followers through the use of illusion and hypnosis. Dr. Barbara Tiering, a professor at Sydney University, evidently has a great deal of unique insight into Jesus, for she writes, Jesus was married and had three children. He then divorced and remarried. He did not die on the cross, but lived and went on Paul. Uh, went with Paul on his missionary travels. It was with Paul in Philippi that Jesus met his second wife. I'm afraid this has even invaded the church where Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Swung writes, he was not born of a virgin since Mary had probably been violated. Jesus himself was married. The wedding at Canaan was probably his own wedding. The Gospels are to be read as the retelling of stories without literal truth. And perhaps my favorite, in fact that is so out there, is by a Semitic scholar named John Allegro. He said that Jesus was not an actual person at all, but a code name alluding to the use of a hallucinogenic drug made from a red-topped mushroom. The writers of the New Testament were members of an ancient fertility cult who committed their secrets to writing an elaborate cryptogram, the New Testament itself. So what do you think? Who is Jesus? How do you answer that question? People have been asking that question since he stepped foot upon this earth. It was the scribes and Pharisees, didn't they, when Jesus forgave sins that they said, Who is this fellow who speaks such blasphemy? Or when Jesus' popularity grew, it was Herod who asked, I beheaded John. Who is this then that I hear such things about? Or even his own apostles asked one another on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus calmed both the storm and the waters, saying, Who is this? And as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, people turned to one another. And did they not ask, according to Scripture, Who is this? Who is he? I'd like to seek that answer with you, if that would be okay. In fact, I'd like to spend the next uh, six weeks or so considering who is Jesus. And we're not going to ask some contemporary novelist or professor bantering about their ideas. We're going to ask someone who knew him, John the Beloved. And so we begin this morning with a a series which we're calling the Advent of Grace and Truth here in John chapter 1. We'll spend probably about six weeks just considering the, the first chapter of John's gospel as he gives us the answer, who is Jesus? In fact, John here in chapter 1 and indeed throughout John's gospel really presents Jesus has come to do two things. He begins by saying that Jesus has come to bring truth. And we see this throughout uh, the first chapter, for instance. He talks about how Jesus is the Word, or Jesus is the light, or in verse 9, that He's come to enlighten us, or in verse 18, He's come to make God known. So Jesus comes to bring truth. Why don't you say that with me? Truth. Can you say that? Truth. Okay. So Jesus comes to bring truth. 
But that's not all that Jesus does, according to John, that he also comes to bring grace. And so we see again in chapter 1 that he brings life and that through him we become children of God or that he is the lamb who takes away sin. Or in verse 51, he's the ladder by which we climb to heaven. And so Jesus brings grace. Why don't we say that together? Grace. So this is what Jesus has come to do, bring grace and truth. In fact, you see in verse 14 of John chapter 1, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Here it is, full of grace and truth. And again in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus has come to enlighten us as to what is true, and to enliven us, that is to give us grace, that we might have life in him. In fact, John will write in John chapter 20 and verse 31, the purpose for his gospel. Why did John write this gospel? Well, he says in chapter 20, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, right? That you may know truth, know this truth about Jesus. And number two, that by believing, you may have life in his name. You may receive grace. You may be saved. And so my goal this morning is really that you would see the truth of God. And in believing that truth, you would have grace from God. That you would have life. And and of course, this book's just not written for non-believers or non-Christians. It's written for us who trust in Christ. That our faith may grow. That we may see more clearly who God is. That we may trust Him more fully. And experience the life that he gives us to a greater degree that we would embrace him and treasure him and find our delight in him. And so we start here in John chapter 1. It's interesting how John starts his gospel. He starts with these incredible profound truths about Jesus. I mean, he, he tells us about the, the most ultimate things that he can about Jesus. I think if you and I were writing a story about someone, we would kind of wait to the end to reveal who he is, right? We would drop little hints along the way, and then at the end we would have this big twist, and you would say, wow, I didn't see that coming. I, I didn't realize that's who he was. But John doesn't start his gospel that way at all. He doesn't say, hello, my name is John. I hope you like my book. He doesn't say, dear reader, um, and, and explain what he's doing. He just jumps in and immediately hits your heart and your head with this glorious two-by-four of grace and wonder and awe, the majestic truths of God. And you read verse 1, and you already are thinking, boy, this is going to be good. And it is. It's incredible. And so I pray that God would give you ears to hear what John the Beloved would say to us through his word this morning. I submit to you, we can learn four things about Jesus from these four verses. Number one, Jesus reveals God. Number two, Jesus is the eternal God. Number three, Jesus is the almighty creator. And number four, Jesus is the life-giving light. And so let's consider Jesus. Number one, Jesus reveals God. Note verse one, the Bible says, in the beginning was the word. I think we need to pause there and flesh that, that statement out. There's so much truth in the, even those, what, six words there. Just to let you know, when he says, in the beginning was the word, when he says word, he's referring to Jesus. We know this because verse 14 tells us, and the word became flesh. So he's saying, in the beginning was Jesus. But he doesn't say, in the beginning was Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the word. Now, I think the question that we have to ask, therefore, is why does he call Jesus the word? Why not just say, in the beginning, Jesus, or in the beginning, this, in the beginning was the Son of God? Why say, in the beginning was the Word? I believe it's because the role 
that the Word of God has played with His people throughout, throughout their time. That we constantly read in the Old Testament things like, and the Word of God came to me saying, and the Word of the Lord spoke through him, and, and he sent forth his Word. And the Word became massively important to the Jewish people as they followed God, that God would speak to them through prophets. And they would consider these prophets to be speaking the very words of God. They would actually write them down, as you know, and consider these to be God's Word. And they would study them and memorize them, and they would teach them to one another. And it is through his word that he gave that they began to understand who God is. It's how God revealed himself. How he revealed who he is and what he thought and his ways and his character. He would do so through the word. It was the revelation of God. Now interestingly enough, even amongst those who did not follow this God, the Greeks in this day, they had a very elaborate system of philosophy about 500 years before Jesus even stepped foot upon this earth. And they had this, this understanding, Plato, Aristotle, uh, Philo, her, her, uh, some guy named Heraclitus. They all understood that there is this ordering principle to this universe. They called it the logos, which is simply the Greek word for word. And so the Greeks understood that there was something called the word that ordered the entire universe. In fact, Plato himself would say, maybe someday, this is hundreds of years before Jesus, maybe someday there will come forth from God a word who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. Well, the word came. You see what, see both the Hebrew and the Greeks understood the word as the revelation of God. John realizes this and he says, listen, the word has come. In the beginning was the word. He's saying Jesus has come to reveal God to us. Which I think makes sense because how do you reveal yourself to other people? Well, you do so through your words, don't you? You say, well, tell me what you're thinking. And you begin to explain to them through words. And it's how we get to know people. Through the words that we say, it reveals our heart and our dreams, our plans and our hopes. We do so through our words. Sometimes we, we, we I think, get things backwards. Some people say, if I could just see God, then I would believe, right? You've heard that. If I could just see him. And for some reason, we've elevated this sense of sight as if it's ultimate. But I think God is perhaps more interested than in the ear. God is more... Pr- more interested in explaining who he is through, through his word, through speaking to us, through recording his word so that we might understand it. After all, the Bible says he is the invisible God. So how then can we even see him? So how does the invisible God reveal himself to us? Not through the eye, but, but through his, his words. Now, I want to push this too far because clearly we're going to see in Jesus, especially in his death and resurrection, the revelation of God. But even those events that they saw in that day is recorded for us in God's word that we might know him through his word. This is how we understand him. And so God has is revealed himself. What John is saying when he says, in the beginning was the word, is that God has revealed himself through Jesus. Jesus has come to be the revelation of God, to show us who God is. And I say, praise the Lord for that. Because how will we know otherwise? How will we know if Jesus had not come to tell us? Please understand that God is, is not distant and aloof and indifferent and unconcerned. God is an extrovert. He wants you to know him. He wants to see, he says to us, listen to me. Let me tell you about me. He explains himself to you, and he does so through Jesus, that Jesus has come to reveal God, come to bring us this truth. Who is God, and what is he like? 
He's come to show us God. Which means that, that Jesus has not come simply to give you stuff. You do understand that, I hope. That Jesus has not come just to hand out blessings. And I think somehow we, we've lost our way, especially in the Western church, where we, we've reduced the gospel to this idea that Jesus is a Santa Claus-like figure with a, with a bag of blessings on his shoulders, and he just hands out forgiveness here, and eternal life here, and a resurrected body here, and purpose here, and he just comes and, and gives us all these things. And we reduce the gospel, we reduce Christianity to, what do I get out of it? We even sell it that way. You want to become a Christian? Look, look at what you get if you become a Christian. Look at all these things that that will come your way if you become a Christian. And Jesus, the Bible says, as the word of God has come, not simply just to hand us out things, though he does give us wonderful and incredible blessings, but he has come to show us this is your God. Which is why I'm convinced that that what we don't need as God's people is a steady diet of, of, of messages like five steps to a healthy marriage or... Or, you know, how God helps you overcome depression or how Jesus will, will help keep your, your kids from playing with knives or, or, or whatever the, the message. You know, we have these therapeutic sermons like God's going to help you here, God's going to help you here, and God's going to help you here. What I'm convinced is that we need a clear, robust understanding of who God is in all his glory and all his majesty and be captivated by his holiness and his righteousness and his grace and mercy. And then what happens? My marriage change and the way I steward my money changes and my children change and my life change because I become captivated with God. And I stop thinking exclusively in my relationship with God. What can I get out of this? Will you please do this for me and do this for me and do this for me? And I start thinking because I now know who he is. I want to give you everything. I want you to have all of me. I want you to have my heart and my mind and my dreams and my hopes and my family. And, and, and I'm, I'm no longer just praying, do this and do this and do this. I'm praying, God, will you use me? I want to be used by God today. I want my mouth to speak of Jesus today. Help me, God. Keep me not, lead me not into temptation because I don't want to walk away from you. And we begin to understand that God is the gospel. He is the good news. I get God. That is the gospel. And Jesus comes to show us who this God is. Let me show you God. Jesus as the word of God. And so John begins his, his wonderful gospel by saying what you're going to see in the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the rising of Jesus is the revelation of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He's spoken to us. He's going to speak to us today as we hear his words. It's going to reveal God to us. The Son of God incarnate put on flesh is the ultimate revelation of God. And so what does he reveal about God? Well, he reveals about himself because he himself is secondly the eternal God. This is what he's saying, I think, here when he says, in the beginning was the Word. And so you see where we're starting John's Gospel, not where Mark starts it, in Jesus' ministry, or not even where Matthew starts it, going all the way back to Abraham, or not even where Luke starts it, going back to Adam himself. But John wants to start it even farther back when he says, in the beginning was the Word. 
And of course, when we read in the beginning, we immediately think of the book of Genesis. This is how the Bible starts with those words, in the beginning. And we read, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we see here, in the beginning was the word. And what this tells us is that Jesus is eternal. That before there was anything, before there was any matter or energy or anything created, there was what? There was the word. The word of God, Jesus. In eternity past, as far back as you go, you will find the word of God. You will find Jesus. He himself said in Revelation 1.17, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Jude will rejoice in this truth, saying, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Listen, before all time, and now, and forevermore. So before there was anything, there was the Word of God. This is the one we meet in this Bible. This is who Jesus is. He's the one who has existed forever. He is eternal. And because he was in the beginning, we would assume that the Word was either with God or was God. But amazingly, John is going to affirm both. That he was with God, as we read on in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now what John is not, is not teaching us is that he was next to God in the sense that they were close to each other. The idea of him being with God is this idea of there's a relationship there. He was towards God. It'd be one way to translate that. Some understand it to say he was face to face with God. That the word in the beginning past was in a relationship with God. That there was a relationship of love and joy and, and fellowship and communion. And I, I just can't imagine what that would be like. I mean, for the there was anything, matter, energy, time itself. There was the Word, and there was God, and they were with each other. They were in relationship with each other. And so we don't know what we, our minds can't even comprehend that, but, but Jesus, on the eve of his crucifixion, he prayed to God, and this is what he said. He obviously is very fond of this time, for he prayed, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And so whatever it was like, it was glorious. I don't know if their love and fellowship and communion was so powerful just spilled over into majesty. And Jesus says, I want that glory back. Before the world began, I want the glory back that I had with you. And so we see that Jesus, this word of God, was in relationship with God. But then we read on somewhat confusingly in verse 1, and it says, and the word was God. So he just wasn't in a relationship with God. He, he is God. And this is how he reveals God to us. How does Jesus come reveal God to us? Well, he does so because he is God himself. That's how he does so. It, it reminds me of when Jesus told the apostles that he's leaving and they're very upset and distraught that Jesus is departing. And, he's, and finally, Philip finds the solution. And Philip says to Jesus, okay, you can go, but before you go, will you show us the Father? He says this, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough. In other words, okay, we're, le- we're willing to let you go, but before you leave, will you show us what the Father is like? Now, Jesus is somewhat disappointed in that question or that request because he's been with Philip for three years doing exactly what Philip just asked. He's been showing him who, what God is like. For Jesus himself said, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you then say, show us the Father? And so, friends, if you want to know what God is like, study Jesus. That God is always Jesus-like. And somehow we got in this mind, and I, I encounter every once in a while, that the God of the Old Testament is much different than the God of the New Testament. 
That's totally untrue. God doesn't change. God doesn't evolve. God has always been, if you will, Jesus-like, and Jesus for Jesus is God. The Word was God. Of course, this is this is very confusing when we try to wrap our mind around. How can you be with God, and how can you be God at the same time? And of course, we we understand that that there is a Trinity in the Godhead, don't we? That that they're they're with each other. They're distinct persons. Distinct centers of consciousness, and yet there's just one God. There's not two, there's, there's not three. And there, there's great mystery here, of course, and there's difficulty to understand this, but what the Bible at the very least is teaching is that God is very unlike you, which is okay for me, that He's unlike us. He's unlike anything else in creation, that He is triune. He, God, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's about all I could get. That's all I'm about to tell you. It's it just... It's, it's very hard to understand. I remember it was years ago that uh, Allegra and I, um, we, we keep, uh, when our kids were little, we would keep these monitors in their room so that in the middle of the night, if they start crying, we could go get them. Or Allegra could go get them. Um, but we, we, would, uh, we, we, would, we would sometimes eavesdrop on, we would put them down for bed and, and we would um, go next to the monitor in the other room and listen to what they're saying. And, and we remember, uh, it was years ago, I think my oldest daughter was about five and um, I, she was uh, with her brother, who was about three at that time. And I remember Josiah um, asking Anna, and he, he said, Anna, is Jesus God? And so I, I was immediately interested, of course. And, and Anna, Anna said, well, of course Jesus is God. And then there was this long pause. I didn't say anything. And then finally, my little three-year-old son said, I thought there was only one God. And Anna's, uh, Anna, the theologian that she is, responded immediately, of course there's only one God. And so I ran and got a pen and a paper because I thought this stuff was good. I wanted to write down some notes <laughs> to try to figure this out. But that's the reality is that, that God is one God manifested in three persons. So the Word can be with God in relationship with God and be God Himself. Of course, people will say, we can't have it both ways. You can, he can either be with God or you can be God. You can't have both. And I just, friends, tell you, take that up with God. His word is very clear. He's with God and he is God. He was God. He continues to be God. And we come down now to verse 2, and it's somewhat a redundant verse. It says, he was with God in the beginning. And you think, well, John, you already told us that. You already said he was, the word was in the beginning and he was with God. Why are you telling us this again? Well, the, verse 2 is, is largely a repeat of verse 1, but there's one, the, the first word is the only thing different. It's the word he, which I think is important for us to understand. When he's talking about the word, he's not talking about some neutral emanation, some, some, some object. He's talking about a person. He, he says, was with God in the beginning. The word of God is a person, and I think that will be significant. We'll consider that later on as we see that Jesus is the eternal God. And I think what John is trying to do when he begins his gospel is just strike us with awe and wonder. This man that we're going to read, this man who was turning water into wine, this man who was um, teaching um, from a hillside, this man who was hugging children, this man who was dying on the cross, is the eternal God himself. And so we are right to worship him, aren't we? We are right to say with the Magi, where is he who was born king of the Jews that we might worship him? We are right to say with the angel chorus to Jesus, holy, holy, holy is the Lord worthy to be worshipped. 
We are right to shout with the 24 elders to Jesus. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. We are right to sing with the saints of old the song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. We are right to fall with Thomas at his feet, saying, My Lord and my God. Jesus is the eternal God himself. And so John begins with this massive understanding of who he is. And he wants to give us this massive vision and appreciation of this one we call Jesus. And it just keeps getting bigger as we consider nextly that he is the almighty creator. Look in verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And so he begins to speak about creation. We almost anticipate that he's going to do so because of how the, the gospel starts in the beginning. So we're already thinking about creation. And so John doesn't let us tarry too long and begins to explain creation. But he explains that it is through the word that all things are made. You see that? All things were made through Jesus. That is, before there was anything that created, before there was light, uh, before there, w- there, was, there was matter, energy, any physical creation, there was a living person. Not a human person, but a divine person. The, the Word of God uh, and, and God, they were there. The, the, the person, the Godhead was there alive. You go far, go f- as far back as you want in time, and you will find this always is there. It's always been there. It always will be there. Life. Personhood. We, we see that all things are made by, see, what is it? Him. He made all things. And it's this life that gave rise to all matter, all energy, all physical creation. The, the reason I'm laboring this point is this is a great difference between how we think and the naturalistic world thinks, how the academia in our country thinks, how the news media in our country thinks. They will suggest to you that, that life is not the oldest thing, but matter is. They will suggest to you that if you go back in time, you will see that matter and energy came first and that they gave rise to life. And so Newsweek article uh, entitled A New Theory on Genesis writes, 400 researchers suggest, and I quote, frothy, filmy, iridescent bubbles of seawater served as life's delivery room. And so what they say is that, how do we get life? We got it from um, bubbles and film and froth. That these things gave, gave us life, gave us personhood. Now the reality is that something has to always exist. There has to be something always. In order for there to be anything, there has to have always been something. Because nothing can't give rise to something. And so there has to have always been something. We, we weren't there, so we, we can't... We can't be there and say, oh, this is what it was at the beginning. And so what the naturalistic mind, they just guess. They have no theory to explain it. There, there's, they, they would tell you that we have no way to understand this. But we believe that if you go back far enough, you will always find matter and energy. That's always existed. And then after billions of years, with no intelligence or plan or purpose, from this mindless matter through random processes emerges personhood emerges life. And I just wanted to point out that's the opposite of what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches you go back to the beginning. You don't find matter. You don't find energy. You don't find creation. What you find there is life, is personhood, 
and it gave rise to everything else. All things were made through Him. Him. He made it all. Which means He made you. And He made me. He is not simply our Lord and Savior, but He is our Maker, our Creator. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Or Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. All things. Everything from the smallest electron or whatever smaller than electron to the, to the largest galaxy. He has made it all. I, I don't know if you know, we, we just found a new galaxy. In late October, we discovered a new one. And uh, the, the scientists, they gave it a name. I find it interesting. Uh, the name of this newest galaxy is Z8-GND-5296 which I just think is stupid. I mean, I mean something wonderful and majestic galaxy, you name it Z-A-G-N-D-5296. And so I'm thinking, well, you know, guys, um, these are scientists, obviously not very creative. You think they'd come up with a bit. We live in the Milky Way. That's a cool name for the galaxy. But they just attribute this number to this new galaxy. But then I begin to realize we, we know of over billions of galaxies. Well, I thought, well, how many words are in the English language? Well, there's only, we don't even have a million words in the English language. So they, they have to result, uh, as a result, they have to give these galaxies, because there's so many more galaxies than there are even words, th- these number names. Though in the manger lies he who built the starry skies, he has made it all. And science helps us, doesn't it? As it silences us in awe and wonder at this one named Jesus who has made all things. All things. Everything. There are some um, who are uh, worshiping in a false religion down the street. um, Our neighbors, uh, the Latter-day Saints. And they will tell you that Jesus was made. He himself didn't make all things. He made everything but him. So were the Jehovah's Witnesses. I'll just point to you that you can't do that and do justice to this verse. You see what was made through him? All things. And they will tell you, well, yeah, of course, all things other than him was made. But notice how redundant John is. It's almost cumbersome. He says, all things were made through him. He says it positively. And without him was not anything made. He says it negatively. And then he adds this phrase, that was made. I mean, why even add that phrase at the end? Why not say, and without him was not anything made, period. But he says, without him, not anything was made, that was made. In other words, anything in the category of made, Jesus made. Therefore, he can't have been made. He made it all, everything. He is the almighty creator. This word of God, as was read by our brother Tom this morning, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. The Father made all things through Jesus. 
Jesus being the instrument of creation, God being the author of creation. Let's not toss aside the Trinity after we just consider it. They are working together. Godhead is working to bring all things into existence. And Jesus has, has made it all through him. And John is trying to help us to shake our heads in unbelievable joy that this man who we read about, this baby in the manger, or this man casting out demons, or this man rejoicing with tax collectors, or being flogged by soldiers or being nailed to the cross created all things. He created the manger in which he lies and the demon which he casts out and the tax collector with which he feasts and the whip with which he's flogged and even the wood upon which he has nailed. He has made it all. All. Including you and me. And therefore we owe him everything. Everything. He is the almighty creator. But John just doesn't simply want to talk about the physical creation or the first creation. What he's ultimately interested in in, is in a new creation, new life, new light, as we turn lastly to consider that Jesus is the life-giving light. Notice what he says in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So he tells us that Jesus has bringing bringing two things. He says he's brought life with him and he's brought light with him. And so what we've already considered, the first three points is really Jesus giving us truth, right? He's brought truth and he's brought grace. And so now John begins to pivot over into this understanding that Jesus is bringing us grace and bringing us life and bringing us light. Uh, we kind of uh, almost expect this and almost like the first creation. We, we know that this, the word came forth. The father spoke the word and things were created. And what did he bring? He brought light and he brought life. And Jesus does so again. Of course, the life that he's referring to, I think, is not in verse 4 when it says in him was life. is not physical life, but I believe it's spiritual life. I believe it's eternal life. I believe this because John will use life this way throughout his gospel. For instance, the verse I already referred to, John's purpose statement in John 20 and verse 31, he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that, and that by believing you may have, here it is, life in his name. You have life in his name. Not physical life, we're already alive, but spiritual life. Eternal life, abundant life. Jesus in John 10.10 would say, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, have it overflowing, have it in excess, have it to the full. The reason that he came was not only to show us God, but was to give us life and abundant, purposeful, meaningful, joyful, eternal life. Because he would say in John 5 and verse 24, Truly I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Eternal life. And I know we banter that term like it's nothing. Eternal life. That goes on forever and ever and ever is found in Jesus. He has brought that. He goes on to say he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You see, apart from Jesus, we're all dead. We're all dead in our rebellion. We're all dead because we live our lives without any regard to the maker who made us, who may want to have an input in how we live and how we think and how we speak and what we do. And we just go about our day in total rebellion and disregard to him. And the Bible says because we do so, we are dead in that. It calls that sin, that, that disregard for God, that rebellion against God. It's sin. It leads to a state of spiritual death. But Jesus says, I've come that you might go from death to life. We need this life to pass from this judgment 
He comes to bring that life. Let me tell you, based upon the authority of God's word this morning, that there is one place in which you can find life, and that is Jesus. It is the only place in which you can find life. He said in John chapter 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Or in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. My question for you this morning is, do you have that life? You see, Jesus has come to give life. In him was life. He says, I'm come so that the dead may live. Do you have that life? Have you received it from him? You will only find it in Jesus. He's the only one, the creator, that can come and give life. The the goal of this gospel, the goal of this passage... The goal of this sermon is that so you might know who Jesus is and that in knowing him, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the one who has been crucified, died, and raised from the dead, that believing in him, you might have life in his name. You can have life today. (laughs) What more could you want? Abundant, saving, purposeful, meaningful, even eternal life if united with Jesus. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 11, God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever therefore has the Son has life and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now people will say, listen, there are many ways to get this life. There's many ways to get to heaven. There's many ways to pass through death into eternal life. And many people have their ideas. And I'm just sharing with you this morning, not my idea, but the idea that is clearly, unequivocally, repeatedly taught in the Word of God that has been handed down for millennia as the authority and the revelation of God for billions of people. That there is nowhere else where one may find life than in Jesus. If you do not have Jesus, you do not have life, the Word of God says. And so I offer you life forever through Jesus. I don't know what will keep you back from taking it. What what more could you want? You may receive that today if you will simply place your faith in Him. You will bow your knee to Jesus as your Lord and God and live your life for Him. He gives you life forever. He would say to some in John chapter 5 and verse 40, you you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You won't come to get life. Those are his words. Of course, the paradox is that we get life through Jesus, through his death. As he dies and he takes all of our sin upon him, he dies for us and our wickedness. And then three days later, he shows that in him was life, just as John says in chapter 1 verse 4, as he lives forever. He not only brings life, but you notice as we end this morning in verse 4, and the life was the light of men. So he, he brings light. I think what John means, and we'll explore this more, God willing, next time, is that when the dead are given life, they are now able to what? Well, to see. They can see now. That the life that Jesus gives brings light. We now have an ability to see. Of course, the question is to see what? I, we could see pretty fine without Christ, but what does he mean that we can see? 
Well, we can see Jesus, I think, in wonder and awe and be overwhelmed by his majesty. This is what I've been praying this week, that God would let us see him through his word for who he truly is. For he has come to bring us light, that we can see that in him is our great joy and hope and delight and satisfaction. So many people think about Jesus and they find him boring or even tame, believe it or not. Oh, we need light to see him. He comes to give that light. He himself would stand before thousands saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When you receive Jesus, you receive life. And when you receive life, you receive light. I hope, my brother and sister in Christ, that you are not counted among those who find Jesus boring or tame or something to put off to the side, not really to interfere in life, to live your life the way you want and then dabble with Jesus. I hope you have been given more light than that, that he is the one who says, you come follow me. I'm not planning to follow you. You come and we'll go together. You follow me that we might have that light. John tells us as he begins his gospel that Jesus has come to bring life and to bring light in order that our hearts may soar, that the man who touched the blind, that they might see. And, and who spoke to the deaf, that they might hear. And who straightened the lame, that they may walk. And who called out to the dead, that they might live. That he himself who rose from the grave, victorious over death himself, is the one who gives you life. Abundant, joy-filled, purposeful, meaningful, sacrificial, radical life that lasts forever and ever and ever. And when He gives you that, He gives you Christian life that you may see the majesty of God displayed in the life and the death and the resurrection of King Jesus. May God help us to see Him. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you that you have sent us Jesus, that we get to have Jesus. Oh, what a great, great truth that this, the eternal God, the almighty creator has come that we might not only know you, but that we might rejoice in you, that we might live for you. I pray for my brother and sister here um, who perhaps needs to be awakened to the glory and the majesty of this God whom they, they call their own, that they belong to God. Will, will that not shatter their, their comfort and the, their, their average life just thinking of this amazing reality that they are now yours and you are theirs because of Jesus and it would change them, their heart and their mind, the way they think and talk and live, that they would want to live for you and not have you live for them. And so help us. Some, some of us need to reprioritize our life. Some of us need to repent. Some of us need to stop asking you for so many things and start asking you to change us that we may become more like Jesus. And so help us, please. I pray for my friend here that, that maybe is visiting, maybe with a friend or, or, or so that perhaps has, has, does not have this life and, and just thinks Jesus is a good guy and, and he's happy for us to love Jesus and he's just going to do his own thing. And I pray that you would help him understand the folly of that, at least challenge that idea. I wonder where he or she gets this idea that Jesus is good for some but not for others. 
Certainly not from the Bible. Will you at least let them be honest to open the pages of the Bible and read what Jesus actually had to say about himself and deal with his very words? Perhaps you would even be pleased this very moment as your spirit works upon them that you would give them life that they might believe in King Jesus. Will you please do this? And lastly, we pray for our church. Will you help us to be a people, a, a community, a people who are in love with you? That's why we are a church, because of you, because we want to live for you and spread your fame and build your kingdom. And so let this place never be about us, but always about King Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.